Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H E L P. My guests today are Grove Armada, from their roots in Raw House and 90s Rave to establishing one of London's biggest music festivals, playing iconic live shows in the world's best venues, releasing eight, soon to be nine, studio albums, selling millions of records and numerous Brit and Grammy nominations. There's not a lot they haven't seen or done on the dance scene. Andy and Tom, welcome! So with this, so I'll give you some background on why I started this podcast. I know that, um, Tom, you've just listened to the Pete Tong episode, but generally the reason why I started doing this in the first place was being born in 94, um, when I started raving when I was 18, I felt like there was all of these stories that I'd heard of other people's rave experiences, that there was something now missing when I went raving. Um, so what's been fascinating for me is talking to people. I've had a lot of mixed reviews. Um, you'll have noticed in the Pete Tong one, his, his p- opinion actually differs from a lot of other people. A lot of other people have said, no, rave is forever changing. Um, there's all sorts of different... Um, different stuff happening with rave now that you didn't get 20, 30 years ago. Um, But then I think Pete was the kind of like the first one to be like, actually, I I have noticed a difference and I don't think it's for the better. Um, Obviously, technology and um, the way music is consumed is completely different now to it was even when I started in the music industry, let alone 20 years ago. Um, But we will get on to all of that. First of all, I would really like to know how it all started for you guys. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, basically, uh, uh, Tom in Cambridge had been uh, had been part of the what was a uh, a Cambridge sort of funk and soul scene that went on to you know like of Tim Lovely and DJ Harvey and all that. But he can tell you more about that if you want more info on that. Meanwhile, I was up north uh, at the beginning of things like uh, sort of pre Back to Basics parties in Leeds and Manchester and stuff like that. So early rave stuff, and then uh, alongside that, I was playing um quite a lot of jazz and blues as a you know what my mom and dad would call proper music and uh <laughs> and so by the time uh, uh i started going out with the the lady who's now my wife uh, who was at school with tom and she suggested that we should meet up uh, i was sort of down the house road and tom had a, a bedroom full of funk and soul records and um and that's where we met in fact is in uh 
uh, in a totally platonic way, of course, in Tom's bedroom in his mum and dad's house in Cambridge. So uh, do you guys play proper instruments then? What what instruments do you guys play? <laughs> I, I play the uh, play the piano and the and the trombone and the bass guitar. And how old did you start doing all that from? Oh, I started that very young because uh, my dad was a trombone player, so I was sort of singing the piano from the, from when I could sit up, really. So I did all the grades on that kind of caper, and then and then someone uh, took me out one night, and I heard Sasha playing, and uh, yeah. and that was that. And Tom, what about you? Yeah, I mean, Andy's definitely more a musician, but I did play uh, the trumpet and the piano quite badly, although I enjoy playing that now. And the bass guitar is the main one that I played in funk bands. So I was. I was more like my hero was a guy called Bernard Edwards, who was the sort of bass player for Chic and Sister Sledge. Uh, I think Andy's hero was more Mark King, a man liked to slap his bass. I like to more so give it a, a, a bit of a nice heavy pluck. But uh, yeah, bass guitar is the, the thing that I play with in funk bands and still play. Both of us still play on stage now. You'll see both of us handing the bass to each other from time to time. So there you go. Was, has it been really important to keep that instrumentation, the live instrumentation feel um, throughout your throughout your careers and in your music? Yeah, it has. I mean, I think that we, as I said, well, like when we first met, we were just talking about that. Andy was saying how he came up to my um, my attic in Cambridge, and yeah, we were both playing, and I was we were both bass players. That was the sort of thing that I really got into, and. Uh, when I go back, when you were doing that intro just now and I was kind of, you were compressing our career into 20 seconds and, you know, remembering some of that stuff and setting up Lovebox and the Grammy nominations, lots of nominations, no awards, but there you go. I do really remember um, but the live thing, that being so central to what we do and, you know, us being, uh, you know, making sort of live dance music that coming together of live instrumentation and technology and something to make sense of club heads was something that was really central to who we were, you know, and, uh, and, uh, you know, I think that's, that's been really key for us. And obviously in terms of big tunes that we've made over the years, then, you know, the first breakout tune for us is probably out the river and that's very much a live piece of music and that's Andy on his trombone. We can talk more about that later because there's good stories about that tune too. So what made it, what made you two fall in love with each other, musically, of course? Oh, cracking. Well, it's Andy's turn, so you're going to have to tell me first. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, basically what, what happened was um, we, we got to know each other and then, and then uh, we moved to London and then with a couple of mates, um, we started putting on a club night because, you know, like lots of people moving to London, we'd be, Tom had been DJ up in Manchester, I'd been DJing uh, up in Leeds and, and around Oxford. Mm. And um, uh, and you get to London, you can't get any work because there's too many DJs and not enough clubs. And so we started trying to put on our own night, uh, which was called Captain Sensual at the helm of the Groove Armada. Uh, and that's obviously where the name came from in the end when we decided to shorten it down to save on printing costs. And so, <laughs> Is that why? That's why, yeah. So we, so we put on these nights in, in, the, in the most random places uh, and some of them worked and some of them didn't. But at some point, uh, we went from uh, being a two-room venue where I would play house and Tom would pay uh, funk and disco and soul and stuff to a one-room venue. And, and that was the f when we started DJing together. And it was from that moment on that we kind of started, uh, f you know, finding a point where the two things could meet. And so by the time we were, we were doing that regularly uh, and Tim Lovely, who'd set up uh, Tommy Touch Records, asked us to 
go off and make an album to promote the parties that we were now DJing at. No uh, when we did that, um, when we when we did that, it was a kind of uh, a fusion of uh, of where we both come from, and it's kind of remained that ever since. And since we've sort of got going, you know, Tom's got much more into house, and I've been introduced to uh, you know a whole sort of cupboard fulls of, of funk and soul that I wasn't aware of. So let me get this right: you were both playing in separate rooms. Mm. One of you playing funk and disco, the other one of you playing house. Mm. And then after starting your own club night and then you started playing together and you only, you were only encouraged to make an album to promote this club night that you had started. Yeah. I mean, I think that my memory of it is slightly different, but I mean, but but only marginally in the sense that I think that we, the first four or five twelves that we cut on Tummy Touch, uh, which were just, were, um, you know, which I've still got copies of. I think they were the ones that we were doing to to promote the club night specifically. And then they actually did all right. And, I, you know, I very memorably remember, you know, once you hear another DJ playing one of your records for the first time in a nightclub, it's like the best thing ever. I remember my kind of one of my DJing heroes, Andy alluded to him earlier, is a guy called Harvey, who's, a, you know, a kind of, uh, you know, has a residency out in Ibiza and Pikes and is one of the top of the great funk soul world DJs of, of our age, you know, DJ Harvey. And he was a guy who was probably four or five years older than me in Cambridge. And he was one that we all looked up to. We used to go and see him playing Brighton in the Zap Club. And we all wanted to be him, you know. And I remember, our thick, I think it was our second 12, was a truck called uh, 80 something, where Andy does a massive synth keys, keyboard solo at the end, I remember. I remember him playing that uh, in a club. And I think that was kind of that, that I could have just stopped making music then. Everything would have been fine. So everything else after that has just <laughs> been a bonus. But I think then that we'd done those four, five, twelves on Tummy Touch, and Tim was like, come on, something's happening here. And he, yeah, he then packed us off to the countryside to Ambleside God, in the Lake it. District and, and said, make a record. And this time, as I remember, Andy was super busy making all sorts of other music. So he was like, I've got a week. So we're going to do this album in a week. I was like, OK, let's give it a go. And so that first album, Northern Star, was completed in, in one week from start to finish. No way. So which one of you, which one of you chose Curtis Mayfield, Billy Jack? That was me. And why did you choose that? I mean, it's an incredible song, by the way. I listened beforehand and I was like, this is, I mean, for, for soul music, it's so incredible and it definitely has that um, emotive connection. I was, I was taken by it straight away. All right, so, well, when we, uh, we used to go to New York a fair bit and, and DJ at the Song Club and, uh, and that was a lot of fun, as you can imagine. And, and absolutely part of that, uh, sort of religious part of that experience was going to this record shop called A1 Records. That was what it was called, wasn't it, Tom? It was. He's Seven Street, still there, yeah. <laughs> there you go. And so, uh, yeah, it's the best record shop in the world. And so, uh, yeah, that was a, a tune. Like, I just liked Curtis Mayfield because I'd heard Move On Up, and uh, that was a bit of a courtship tune for me, that one. And I didn't really know much more about him, and I just liked the sleeve. It's a brilliant sleeve. The, the, the album's called... Uh, there's no place like America today. Is this the one with the picture of the white family in the car and with exactly, a line yeah. of black people in front of it? Incredible, yeah. I was really Exactly, yeah. Answer. Yeah, that's it. So so I just liked the sleeve and uh, I thought it was worth a punt given the move on up to it. It was as simple as that. And then <clears throat> when I when I first listened to that tune, uh it, it's just it's just a perfect record. Like the 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 the, the groove, there's just so much space in the groove. It's this, the, the the holes in the music are just amazing, so funky. 
and it's the perfect vocal and the way it builds and the way that the horns come in and the way that that develops. You know, he's just one of those records which is just faultless. And that, that's a, a sort of a reference point for me ever since. You can hear it in, in like, if you listen to sort of uh, like the first half of Edge Hill, for example, that's got, that's got that kind of a bit of that feel. Uh, to it but that's yeah, it's just became an absolute gold standard of music for me from the first time i heard it well we should listen to it this is curtis mayfield billy jack Right, you guys. How long? How long are you two? So you were both going to New York together to DJ. I think so. We were. How long had you been together for this point? How long had you been DJing together? This must have been like uh, it was the very beginning of the Jive Records era, so it must have been like ninety nine, ninety eight, something like that. Uh, so uh, probably year two or three, I guess. Mm. Wow. You can definitely hear from these songs that you've cho- you've chosen how they they have influenced you guys i mean it's it's quite amazing really um let me take it back to your club night that you started how easy was it to start that club night and what was it like in in a derave what was it like when you were there yeah i mean it was not i mean we both of us i think had dj'd quite a bit before then i mean i was in i'd been DJing quite a bit in Manchester and I played a couple of times in a Hacienda, which was amazing. And I had was a resident at a place called Head Funk for a year. So we we both DJed and Andy had done loads of stuff himself up north and when he was at college. So like Andy said, it was just hard to get the work when we came back into London with so much stuff going on. So they were more like they were really parties to bring together just groups of friends, you know, and it was we really were relying on on our just our crowd to come. And then it kind of got a bit more ambitious, uh, probably too ambitious. We were a bit like Icarus, you know, we sort of flew to the moon and got uh, up to the sun and got burned quite badly. Uh, we set up a night. What was, the, what was the name of that venue, Andy, Where we did the, for the Dave Seaman night? Uh, it, was the, um, it was the Gardening Club 2. So, yeah, we overstretched ourselves that night, didn't we? And we lost a ton of money. We booked Dave Seaman, which for us at the time was like, particularly for Andy, I think, it was, it was a big deal, you know. And we slightly overstretched ourselves there, didn't we? We lost a considerable amount of money then for ourselves in those days. Just about money. <laughs> and and, we, and the, the, uh, that was the, the day after was the famous um, newspaper headline, because as we sort of had our fry up to see how we were going to plug the hole in the finances... Uh, the headline oh, of no. the back page of the tabloids was Seaman Sinks Armada, which is quite amusing. Oh. That was referring to a football game between England and Spain, but it was quite an appropriate headline. <laughs> well, and, uh, I mean, all press is good press. Yeah. And actually, yeah. in a weird sort of way, the good thing that came out of that was we realised that our future wasn't in club promotion. Although weirdly, like you say, we went back to then set up one of London's biggest festivals, but that came later. But um, that refocused our energies on wanting to write records and be DJs and to stay out of the organisational side of things, which is probably a good decision, you know? 
Is was it a difficult process going from DJing to writing? Or did that come naturally? I mean, as well? I, I mean I think Andy should answer that a bit more because he'd been right Andy was I had never written I well actually yeah, that's not true. I'd had one EP out with one band years ago, but we had I hadn't really committed much stuff to vinyl before I met Andy. So he you'd had quite a lot of experience, Andy. You were remixing and writing and all sorts by then, weren't you? Yeah, I'd I'd, I'd uh, had a couple of rave tunes out uh, on a label called Rumor Records, and because uh, I had a deal going in in Wakefield where I grew up, where there was a there was a rich kid whose dad had a snooker club, and his dad bought him a recording studio, but he he didn't know how to use any of it. So I had a deal with him where I would go down and help him write a tune, and then I got to use the studio for the rest of the night. Right. So using that deal, I, I'd managed to get a couple of. Uh, tunes out on this rumor records thing which is very exciting and then i was living in a flat when i met tom i was living in the flat in uh, clapham with two other lads and we had a band called the beat foundation and um we've been doing some <laughs> we've been doing some live livey sort of yeah dancey lively gigs and we were and we'd had a tune on pete song in fact uh which was massive and then we uh, massive for us anyway and then we were actually just in the process of signing a deal with Virgin when uh, it all started happening for me and Tom and it was a very difficult conversation my flatmates with whom oh, I've, I've been no. struggling with for years saying lads I'm afraid uh, I'm going to have to roll with this one that was not fun so you had just got a record deal with your old band with your other band and you and yeah. Tom had just started DJing together and it was all kicking off for you two as well making music together yeah, and it just felt like, uh, you know, there was just a vibe of me and Tom were making the tune. Because I think my first memory of making music together was it was all just a, just a laugh. And to be honest, it's always remained that, in that Tom would, Tom would come round uh, with some records that he wanted to sample. I had a little basic setup in my bedroom in this flat in Clapham, so we'd mess about with that. And then we'd go out on the, on the common and play a bit of football because I was, uh, I'm, I'm shit and Tom's a really good football player. So we were having a kind of skill exchange. And uh, and that sort of spirit of just having a laugh and making music that we both think is great has remained the the modus operandi ever since. It's the best way to make music. When did you move down to London? Then did you move to London for 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 uni? Ninety four for me. And then what? The promoter was it? The promoter that came up to you guys and told you you should make an uh, to go go away and make an album for it. He was a guy called Tim Lee, who was, um, he was called Tim Lovely was his, uh, his pseudonym. He's still out there. He's running a label called Tommy Touch. It's still going. But I was in a band when I was in a band in Cambridge called the Thumbsaurus People. He was in a band two years older than me called Bugwan Fresh and the Gurus of Jive. And they were like my heroes. They were the guys I wanted to be. They used to wear caftans and play funk covers. They were brilliant. And then he set up this label in Shoreditch, which is a Shoreditch, which is unrecognisable from the Shoreditch you're in now, like a proper, like, you know, yeah. it's crawling in and out of strange brick walls and just a much madder, madder, wilder place. He lived in this funny warehouse on Rivington Street, which is probably now almost certainly an estate agent. So at the time, was anything but that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he ran that label. There were some people called the Idiot Boys were signed to that. Lots of kind of lot, of, actually a lot of acts from from my hometown, from Cambridge, signed to that label, and all doing all right. There was a label called New Phonic around that time that was in the same sort of lane. And um, yeah, he sort of showed some belief in us and and sent us off packing. And really, it was that that making that album, which was Northern Star, which he did in a week, which that was the one that had out the river on it and that was the one that it really happened really rapidly after that like it's sort of when i think about 
from making that record, you know, Andy says two in like two years later, we were in the Tunnel Club, you know, as sort of guests, up and coming UK DJs, part of an American label. It was very sudden. And um, and it really was probably at the river that kind of, you know, broke the floodgates for us. You know, I'm that, that that tune and Rob the Bank, who was the editor of Music Magazine at the time, picked it up on that, pressed a few sevens. And it was, I guess in those days, it was a much simpler time. You know, there wasn't there wasn't social media. There wasn't sort of SoundCloud or anything like that. So it wasn't a lot of people didn't have access to technology the way they do now. So there was just less music about. And there's a small cabal, you know, of kind of A&R guys. And they were mainly guys, you know, who were signing records. So if you kind of knew the right people and you had some momentum, things could happen quite rapidly. So it, and it happened really rapidly for us. We did that. We signed a, a label deal with Jive, like about six months later, went back into the studio, did Vertigo, which is our first sort of album that people are really aware of, which... And that's why I had ICU baby on it in February at the same. And then we were in that summer after that we were in Ibiza and then everything starts, you know, and then from there on in it's like that it's really, quick. Really rapid, yeah. So ICU baby was written basically in the basement of Manumission, uh, full of all these strippers. And it was a woman called Grandma Funk who was the hostess with the mostess, who was me and Andy used to DJ and she'd get on the mic and do her bit, and that was her one night who started singing the ICU baby lyrics. So everything happened really suddenly. And I guess we were quite good at, I think there's a lot of madness in that time. And a, a lot of it is about the people who were probably just about able to keep their shit together enough to kind of, to, to actually get some stuff down are the ones that survived, you know? And I think we were like, when we were in Matthew Mission, we were really having a great time, don't get me wrong. But I think we were like, this is happening. We need to get back to the studio, get this recorded. This, there's something happening. And there's a, a lot of people that didn't quite have the self-control to get that stuff down, you know? Right, I see. I can imagine the drugs were much better back in the day, so I can see why. Yeah. Um, from what I've heard, anyway. Um, that's that's really fascinating that you say that because what you're from what from what I've heard you talk about is that there are actually quite a lot of record deals going on. I mean, Andy was having about five different record deals by the sounds <laughs> of things going on, <laughs> um, and and. As you said, Tom, like a lot of people from Cambridge had been signed and all of that. Like from my pers my perspective, obviously where I've come up from, you know, uh, uh, if you weren't in London, you didn't have much of a chance of getting a record deal. Um, and it's fascinating that you say actually technology and being able to produce from your bedroom and do all that shit, like that has actually made it a lot harder and, and saturated the market so much that people just don't get much notice or you have to have a very, you know, it has to be fucking on TikTok with uh, a, a million, three million streams or whatever. Um, that's really fascinating that you, you talk about that. Um, what do you think about, what do you think it was with At The River that kind of did all that for you? Zoe Ball, mainly, I think. Bless her. It was Zoe Ball who was doing the, 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 the breakfast show on Radio 1 at the time. Ah. And, uh, and um, I don't know. Oh, I think she presumably listened to it because there was a front cover of Music Magazine back in the days when magazines were, you know... Still a thing the, as well. They're still mm. a thing, yeah. So... Uh, Maybe that's why she listened to it. Anyway, she she loved it. I think it went on to be a, a, a quite a big tune at her wedding to, to Norm. And oh, um, no but uh, she, she uh, so yeah, so she she played it because th they'd said that it was too slow 
for the for the for the radio, and then, but she kept playing it anyway. And then the uh, the response from the listeners um, was so positive that uh, they eventually agreed to reconsider the playlist decision. But then there was a whole battle because they wanted to take the trombone out, and obviously without the trombone out, it's just a loop. So then we had to sort of fight that one. And anyway, eventually it ended up uh, as part of the daytime playlist, which was quite amazing, really, considering what an odd tune it is. Um, it's kind of a tribute to, to Radio 1 that that eventually found its way on there. Wow. I mean, I will talk about I will talk about the river in a sec, but it, it's mad to me that over this, this podcast series, it's crazy to think how... Ex- Firstly, I mean, it, it, it doesn't surprise me that radio tried to A&R your record for you <laughs> and tell you which part to... I don't know what is radio's problem, but they're radio... They play records. They're not A&Rs. We've got enough fucking A&Rs in the world to keep us all from questioning what kind of friggin' beat it is, which, how free, what frequency is on the hi-hat, whatever. It annoys me that radio has that sort of power and fucking fair play to you guys for sticking to your guns with that. Um... Because I kind of think without the without the trombone, it's it's half it's half a song, right? Um, so incredible that you guys pushed forward to it. I do feel like, and it, in a sense, that was kind of like a, a, a modern model um, where the track gained traction due to Zoe Ball playing it on her radio station, mm. and then it getting onto Radio One playlist, and 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 then having that crowd reaction. That's typically kind of how it works with Spotify and stuff, right, mm. now. Um, so interesting with that. The reason why I picked At The River for for my track is not only because um, when I was on tour with Pete Tong doing the Ibiza Classics, this song wasn't in the first year, and I don't think it was in the third year, but it was in the second year that I did the classics with, with, um, with the Heritage Orchestra and Pete. And... It was it was my fa- it was actually my favourite part of the set because even though it was a little bit slower, people were still like it was still a very euphoric thing for a lot of people. I also have earlier memories. What year was this released, by the way, out of interest? Oh, good question. Ninety-seven, I think. Right. Yeah, it sounds about right. So I remember going on holiday with my parents and being in the back of the car. I don't know how old I was, but I remember, like, the memory makes me feel quite young. Mm. And I remember this song being played on the way to the seaside. Mm. Um, I am going to shut up and play this because I can't wait to hear it. Um, This is Groove Armada at the river. I think what I love the, the most as well is that plodding bass. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's 
it, it's, it's it's almost it's it's very smooth but very clumsy in a way what I like about it how did how did you put all of that together how did it come around tell me it's, I mean, it's interesting. Like, oh, you go. Sorry, I was, I was, the only thing I was going to say about it, I'll pan over to Andy because he played the trombone. But I was going to say that just that thing about technology I was talking about earlier. I think the 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 lovely thing about at the river is that it came out of the fact that we just we were in the middle of the Lake District and we just didn't have anything with us really. We just hadn't. We brought one sampler and one keyboard. We didn't even have a microphone. So um, I'll let Andy tell you no. about that because he actually worked out how to play it. So we, um, so there's something about sometimes just forcing yourself to make music with when you don't have too many choices, you know, where you just have to make stuff work. And out of that, I think you kind of end up with strange collisions of things, you know, like a weird 50s vocal because you've got to make that work with that one bass sound you've got, which is the Nord. And then Andy had his trombone, so you make that work. And somehow, you know, if you had all the choices in front of you in the studio, you probably wouldn't have stuck a sample of Patty right. Page of the trombone. So there's something about sometimes when you're writing music, not having choice, you know, and limiting yourself and forcing yourself to make strange compromises and weird decisions. And I think that really benefits from that one. But I'll hand over to Andy, who played the trombone and also had the, the technical knowledge to turn a speaker into a microphone. <laughs> Great segue, Tom. Thank you, Darren. <laughs> um, yeah, so, I mean, well, it was... Um, well, like all, all tunes are obviously incredibly random because they're always a product of a moment in time, which was in se- itself incredibly unlikely to have happened, you know. So, um, uh, so but this, the ingredients of this one definitely fit that insofar as it was quite near the end of, of the week that we had in this place. And uh, I think it was the last trip down to the village store to get, uh, what was that, that beer we were drinking? It was our Boddington's yeah. and these terrible <laughs> waffle things. It was basically the Boddington's and the waffle shop. And um, and on the on the counter they had a a, a, a load of CDs for fifty p, and at the top of this pile was sounds of the fifties, and it was fifty p, and and so this was just like stick it with the beers. There might be a sample on there, and uh, and that's what had the, the 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 Patty Page tune on. And the first thought listening to that was just what nice chords they were. So there's a watch in the computer to try and work out what the chords are because it sounded nice. And then it actually sounded quite nice just leaving the, the loop in there with, with the chords. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, I had my trombone because I was still earning money sort of doing the old jazz gig and I had to practice. Uh, and so I was just practicing over the top of these chords that we got going, playing just, you know, the old standard blues stuff. And it sounded quite nice. Um, and as Tom said, there was no microphone. And my old physics teacher at school did a thing once which has stuck with me where, where you know, a microphone turns movements of air into electric- electricity and the speaker does the reverse. And so if you, if you reverse the, the wires, you can make one do the other or you, you get what I'm saying. Wow, anyway. techie so, as fuck, man. Well, it's, it basically sounds like it, but you, it, was, it involved uh, taking the two wires of, a, of the speaker and, and sellotaping them onto a guitar lead and uh and it worked and so that's allowed us to uh record the trombone and you know in passing it just happened that the particular sort of crap hi-fi the cottage happened to have gave it a sort of old louis armstrong kind of sound which didn't hurt oh my god and um uh and and that was that but then when we when we put it all together as tom said yeah massively helped by the fact that you got one bass noise a couple of pad sounds and that's it and you've got about seven seconds of sampling time and uh, and you just avoid all that what my dad would call paralysis through analysis, 
where you've just got a thousand choices or ten thousand choices for every sound, uh, which is a real plague, I think, of uh, of all the obvious upsides of Ableton Logic and everything. It's too many damn choices, so we yeah. didn't have that. But when when all these things came together, um, we did kind of realise that it was a good tune because I remember when we, for some reason, we were in individual cars when we set off back to London we ran off a second dat tape copy I wouldn't imagine you can google what a dat tape is when we finished yeah and, I've uh, had I've uh, had these zinc taught me that so I've had that conversation about dat tapes already so you recorded your dat tape and then we took one each back to London in case one of us had a crash so there was a recognition that it was a good tune <laughs> so really a happy accident more than anything yeah and actually then oddly when I was then taking that dat to a, a record shop of no, a place to get the, the first seven inch cut. I did mm. have a crash, so that we were right in thinking that somebody drove right up my bum just on the way in. I had quite a bad crash, <sighs> but then oh, I still, no. still managed to get the seven inch cut, so that was all good. But yeah, it is fucking wild how precious tunes were back then. Mm. That if you had, if you were the only person with a copy of that tune, that's it, yeah. You know, it's not a case of, oh, I've just saved it to my hard drive and I've saved it to my computer. So if anyone steals this, I've got. I've got that on my computer. It it was a real, mm. you know, you had to guard that like it was your child. Yeah, that's mental, and and the weight within a song as well. Mm. Um, you know, fascinating stuff. Um, so it was released in '97 and a hit in '99. Took two years. What happened in those two years? Well, it was sort of a hit when it was first released in the sense we're talking about that like the seven inch came out, did 500 copies, they sold out, then we did another 500 and they went and then Rob picked up on it. And that effectively, that was the thing that led to our deal. That's why we got the deal with Jiver. He was the back of that seven inch. We were offered a couple of other deals at the time, but they were the ones that we just wanted to go with. They were the ones that believed in us as a, an album act, you know. And then, um, yeah, and then it was finally released up properly with the weight of a record label behind it. And... Uh, and yeah, it became a hit. I, I'm not sure. Was that the first single off Vertigo? I'm not sure it was. I feel like maybe if everyone... I see you, baby. I, I see think. you, baby. Was I, the, I know. Everyone looked the same. Everyone looked the same. You're right. Yeah, yeah. it was everyone looked the same. Because we, we wrote... When we did Vertigo, we wrote an album that basically sounded like 12 At The Rivers. Um, not as good as At The River, but lots of down-tempo stuff. And our A&R man, a guy called Scott McLaughlin, and he was right to do this. Uh, basically sent us back into the studio. This was post our um, hedonistic summer in Ibiza and said, you know, this was the era of what I guess you were calling Big Beat, you know, that, that whole Big Beat sound where Norman was, uh, you know, Fatboy Slim was in his absolute mm -hmm. preeminence. And they were like, you need a bit of that on your record. So we went back in and we wrote if February the same and I See You Baby, which is probably a wise decision to do those because they, they were the ones that kind of opened the doors for us and then At The River came in as the third single on that record. And by that time, people were, you know, the radio was on board with us and were supporting us. You also had a massive um, car sync, didn't you? Yes. If I remember, because I See You Baby, I remember that tune. I think it was the Fatboy Slim remix. Yeah. But that's what I've, I remember that advert prominently in my mind mm. because of that tune. Yeah, and I've never been, it's one of those complicated things. I think when it comes down to having your music used in a commercial way, whether that's films or adverts, I think you either say yes to like most things or you just, or like you're like Prince or whatever, and you just say no to a massive attack and you say no to everything. And But for yeah. us, the sync stuff has worked really well. I mean, financially, obviously, but actually in terms mm -hmm. of bringing our music to a wider audience, you know, it's been really helpful for us, whether it's like, 
you know, a, a, a big Richie Havens track we had on a film called Collateral, which brought me, a, you know, which would a track called Hands of Time, which would never have been picked up or like that one, which was the, I won't mention the brand, but it was definitely a, a French car maker with a fat bottom car, hence the ad, you know, and they were, they were, they were, you know, help, you know, helpful for us financially and allowed us to do things with the live band that we wouldn't be able to do, but actually really helped, you know, people become more aware of us as a band. So, uh, I'm, I have no shame in taking the, the corporate dollar. <laughs> Is it so? I'm from that conversation. Then I'm guessing commercial success is nice, but not necessarily why you do any of this at all. I think if if, if that would been the be all and end all, we, we would have charted a, a very different path, you know. Because when when I see you, baby, was a hit. Obviously, what what people want is another another tune that sounds like that. Or when Super yeah, yeah. was a hit, what people want is another tune that sounds like that. And uh, uh, and you know, in terms of making money, it, it, uh, when you're when you're flavour of the month and you can play on the big stages as a dance act, if it's just the two of you and a few machines, then you can definitely make some money. If you do, mm-hmm. if you do it with a live band, which requires a total crew of twenty five people, you don't. No. We were. Um, uh, we I've definitely that one. didn't. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't. We didn't uh, make uh, uh, any sort of strategic financial decisions ever. But I don't regret that for one second uh, not least because you know we saw that we starved we're fine and um uh, but you know the live thing for example that really became a defining thing for us as a as a, as a band yeah but also personally i think you know as, as as people the 15 years that we spent with that group of people uh, the band and the crew which remained pretty much constant throughout all that time we had quite a sort of communist approach to the the setup and um that was just magical that's stuff that you just just no money can buy and so uh so that that was you know at, at the end of the day what's it all about really you know i wouldn't have changed that for the world well when you're on tour with a group of people who all love the music they're playing who all love the people that are making the music and it feels like you're on some special journey together and cre- creating these incredible vibes and atmospheres for crowds all around the world i mean there isn't much that comes close to that and if you guys have had 15 years of that mm then how, how, I mean, how amazing must that feel? And it is amazing. And then some of the moments when I look back on it now, you know, incredible things of closing the second stage and Glastonbury and, you know, John Peel when we came back with Black Light and so many amazing gigs, like doing five nights standing in a place called the Horton Pavilion and Sydney, same thing in Brixton and headlining stages around the world. That's all been amazing. And it has been the most extraordinary thing. It's also been the most physically, emotionally demanding thing as well. You know, like there are... Yeah. There are times, I remember there's a story, we played a thing called Big Day Out, a festival in Australia. I'm not sure if it's even going anymore, but it was a massive, big Australian festival. And the big gig was to sort of close the boiler room in there. And you go in there and find like 20,000 people, this massive room. And I sort of remember standing inside the stage just before one thing, this promoter just came up to me and just going, don't fuck it up. And I just thought, oh, <laughs> fucking great. That's great timing. And just before I go on, and there was a lot of that stuff as well. You're thinking to yourself, that exact phrase, don't fuck it up. And always, so it's great, but that pressure is always there in the back of your mind, you know, and always wanting to do better and always driving yourself on to kind of make the gig as good as you can. So it's absolutely brilliant, but it's totally exhausting uh, at the same time, you know, and anyone who's been on those kind of runs knows how much, how much you get out of it, but how much it takes from you as well, you know? Yeah, because you, I, I always feel like you put that pressure upon yourself that if it isn't perfect, of course, everybody's got their eyes on you. But, you know, I've been to many raves where, 
you know, I've even seen Andy C not be matched correctly. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, I'm there going, oh, he, he missed out on that. But nobody else knows. No. Um, and I feel like, you know, there's a lot of emotional pressure that you put on yourself that if your show isn't the best that you think it can possibly be, mm. then that also takes a lot out of you as well. Yeah. I can I can see that. Um, I wanted to go back to Ibiza because you mentioned this whole, you got your record deal um, and then from there, it you know, it went from zero to 100 and all of a sudden you were playing in Ibiza. Um where did you start out in Ibiza? What was that first summer like? And did you come out? Uh, did you come out anxious and depressed shells of yourselves? <laughs> I definitely did. Uh, <laughs> Andy started a little bit before me, and then we, we. My first trip was a few years later, wasn't it? I mean, you were out. When were you? When did you first go, mate? I went in '89 uh, as a, as a as a youngster because my my cousin was a DJ. He he'd set up a free party thing called DIY. A Nottingham-based sort of free party collective, and they were they were playing over there. So I sort of tagged along, and then I had this with the Beat Foundation we were talking about earlier. We had another trip down there, where we were promised a gig in Amnesia or a season of gigs in Amnesia. We drove down to a beat in a post office van uh, to do <laughs> these gigs, and when we got there, there were no gigs, and we oh. were literally stealing from supermarkets. I can say that now, probably in safety. Um, to, uh, to to feed ourselves, and uh, eventually managed to borrow a hundred quid off a stranger to buy the diesel to drive back to the UK again, and had to cry our way onto the ferry because our ticket had expired. So that that wasn't a brilliant trip, although it did have oh, it, did, no. it did involve a cast of colourful people. But then the first sort of proper thing summer, you know, as a DJ, yeah, it was I mean, it couldn't have really been better. It was when Manumission was in full swing. We were residents there for a while and we stayed in the Manny Mission Motel which is sadly uh, has, is no more it didn't last very long actually but that was like when people think of uh, of, of Ibiza and what it stands for that's what it's that's what it is or that's what it was in, insofar as it was you know a, a coming together of like total nutters and mavericks in a in a in a situation where anything feels possible and is uh, but without any aggression or 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 bullshit mm. and and totally lawless uh, and that didn't last for that long but what it did it was a lot of fun so mm. you because you guys uh, you play often at space right if i'm correct yeah um yeah. you're not you weren't residents there but you were you were regular regulars at there right we practically residents of, of we love you know for a long time we would play what was still at that time an outdoor terrace you know for we the love first Sundays, few years. Right? yeah and that was amazing mm. that was probably my i mean actually like until very recently i mean we've been doing this gig recently and obviously nothing's happened this summer but we've been playing in this lovely little outside stage at Shawaii the last few years. So I've really enjoyed it. I love playing outdoors in Ibiza. I think that's that's something mm. magical about that. You know, it's obviously you can do it in the UK, but it's normally raining. But there's something about, you know, an alfresco club experience in Ibiza that was magic. So that, that We Love period was really, really amazing, actually. I had a great time there. And it just, uh, you know, the acoustics always great and the people you work with are great. The, you know, the vibe is always good. And just lots of great records coming out at that time as well. So just really fun to be DJ music you genuinely loved, surrounded by people that you, at that time, you thought you genuinely loved. I'm not sure if we really did, but you know what I mean? But there was a great vibe <laughs> about the whole thing, yeah. Do you still think that, because I asked Pete this, and because when I first went to Ibiza, the, 
there was a lot of wankers um, Instagramming their mates shuffling. Mm. There was there was the girls in the tiny little outfits and you know and the boys with their tops off and mm. you know and they'd done pills that make them mong out too much and you know is this do you still think there's that vibe there even with the VIP culture but like um, do you still feel like there's that special um, rave? scene over in Ibiza that is still just as good to this day? I mean, from, from my own point of view, I've like I say, last couple of years playing in that little slot that we do in Ushuaia, which is not the main slot. So it's sort of six to eight o'clock as the sun's coming down and you can play more interesting house music than the stuff you have to do when you're on a big stage, you know. So mm-hmm. you play stuff that's got a bit of a wiggle and a groove. And I think the vibe you get out there is lovely. You know, like it's a really, you know, it's probably, it is unlike many other clubbing experience I have. But so from a point, personal point of view, I, I, I still, even now, you know, I've really missed it this summer. I still get a real tingle when the, you know, when the, the wheels touch down on the tarmac, you know, I really do. And it still <laughs> so, does it for me. And there's lots of people we know that are still out there and there's restaurants that I love to eat. And I can still feel the magic of that experience. But I mean, obviously, it's diminished for all sorts of reasons for us personally. But I don't know. What do you think, Andy? Yeah, I, I still, you know, get the, the the same thing. You know, twenty five, whatever it is, years on, when when the plane touches down the beta, it still feels like you're going into a world where you know you still got that kind of you know anything might happen feeling about things. You know, which is which is great, and it is a bit of a sort of pleasure palace. You know, as you say, it might move might be more based around where you have where you have a nice cold beer and a bit of food these days than the after party. But still, whatever you know, whatever floats floats your boat really. But I do think that. Uh, yeah, on the other hand, you know, it's very, very difficult, you know, how many how many times we've got to go around the same circle of people who are nearer 15 and 18 saying it was better when I was young, you know, I mean, you've yeah. got to be mindful of that. But I do think that phones have, have meant, obviously, they're, they're handy and all the rest of it, but they have fundamentally changed things. And I think some, some pretty negative ways, because as you were saying just then, this whole obsession with a with, with appearance on the one hand and with celebrity on the other and you put those two things together and it's kind of removed uh, uh, a whole strand of the magic which whether there were free parties in 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 the uk or in ibiza it's like you when you went there you were off radar you know it, yeah. it just like you were it was total freedom to go wherever you want do whatever you want go on whatever mission you want uh, and the fact that you've got this thing and uh, people are taking photos and videos all the time and, and, it, and you need to Instagram to prove you're there and all that sort of stuff. I think that more than anything, more than the, you know, the music changes, things change, but that more than anything, and not obviously not just in this uh, uh, sort of realm, but everywhere, has been the thing which has changed culture and youth culture forever, really. And, uh, and it is what it is. And, you know, maybe some people like it more, some people like it less, but it's definitely different. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow, interesting. Nobody's actually said it as poignantly as that. Um, and I, I, feel like a lot of, I feel like a lot of guests I've had on have always wanted to skirt around that slightly. Um, but... That's exactly how I feel, and that's maybe quite sad, really. Um, I think I'm, I, I've generally gone raving to drum and bass. Over my time in my career, I've, I've been to a lot of other different raves um, just by the nature of the songs that I've featured on. And especially with online, there's the good side of it where you can actually find out more music and check the latest bootleg or, you know, or the freshest double drop or whatever through somebody filming it on their phone. Mm. Um, but almost, you know, that Ibiza culture, as you say, of if I don't put it on Instagram, it's not real. Mm. That for me has changed the landscape of raves slightly. And um, it's really interesting to hear you talk about that. Mm. Um, and thank you for that, for your honesty with that. Um, let's take it back to a time when there was no phones. Um, who chose Last Rhythm by Last Rhythm? That's handy. That was me again. I, I don't know how I got two of the three there. That's uh, <laughs> intentional. Why did you choose Last Rhythm? Uh, just because, I mean, it, it, it could have been a, a few different ones, actually, but that's the one that always comes to mind when when I think of, like, you know, my whole life has has been uh, determined by house music, and uh, and when I think of uh, those moments in the kind of formative years uh, between sort of like seventeen and twenty one, where you have those moments of like utter perfection, generally at sunrise, where nothing can be better in the best of all possible worlds, and the tune that comes to mind when I when I when I see the kind of collage of those images in my mind is that one, and so uh, whenever I whenever I hear it now, whenever it comes on now and again on some old classics thing or whatever, uh, it's almost like it can almost it almost brings me to tears. Not not necessarily in a negative way, but it's just it's got so many memories loaded into that tune of of, of those kind of feelings that um, it's almost hard to listen to. Although I suppose you're about to play it. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Um, so if you could just uh, switch off your audio for this one, Andy. This is Last Rhythm by Last Rhythm.
vibey. Um, I want to know all about Lovebox. What made you start that up? Um, how have you so casually forgotten about it? And, um, <laughs> and uh, why did you start that up in the first place? It was a brand. I mean, there's an album, I can't remember our fifth album or fourth album, I think, called Lovebox. And it was a really odd time for us. We were sort of, we'd basically sort of been dropped by the label without them actually getting around to telling us. They just stopped supporting us on that record. And we were touring it. And we were going into like literally doing gigs in like Sheffield and there were no records in any of the shops. And we were just feeling a bit abandoned, really. And we liked the record and there's some great tracks on that record. And then... So we just, we were a bit, bit of a low ebb, I think, at that point. We were probably both of us mulling over the idea of packing it in, to be honest. The, the, the whole thing, it just felt like there wasn't, you know, it just wasn't enough support for us. Um, felt quite lonely out there. And then somebody, a guy called Ross Clark, told us it uh, had a, a site for a festival for a one day. It was the weekend in Glastonbury. So we were like, well, this is madness. It's never going to work, but let's do it, you know. So we did a put on a gig to, you know, ostensibly play that album in Clapham, called it Love Box, uh, sold 20,000 tickets in an hour. I mean, it sold out oh. overnight. It was like bonkers, which obviously gave us a lot, you know, renewed self-belief that there was still an interest in what we did, particularly the live stuff. And we put Norman Jay and we put Tim Lovely and me and Andy, then, and then the band played. And, um, yeah, and then, like, sort of people we are, we just sort of stuck at it, really, and through thick and thin and tried to build it, and then we moved it to Victoria Park. We were sort of headlining the event every year, which was sort of good in some ways because, you know, it's nice to play your own parties, but it meant that we never, you know, we could have been playing, I don't know, whatever big London festival was worth going on then and making a ton of money, but we didn't. We just lost loads of money on our own festival. But um, but the, the experience of walking around that festival, you know, with 25,000 people there and me walking around and how I felt about it, no one knowing, because no one ever recognises me. They recognise Andy quite a lot because he's so tall, but they never recognise me. So I can walk around incognito at our own gigs, let alone our own festival. And just watching people just enjoying themselves. And, you know, we were quite early on in bringing Horse Me Disco. We had a big gay Sunday and we were really proud to play a part in, in that side of things in London culture. And all those contributions we made Amazing. and being part of that was enormous, you know, made, gave me enormous sense of pride, you know. And then, like all these things do, money men got involved and they weren't very nice people and didn't really want to be around that culture. And an opportunity came to sort of be bought out and we took it. But, uh, and I'm really relieved because it caused me loads of emotional stress. And, you know, the bits I loved about it were the kind of, you know, that when the party starts and you're just watching people having a good time. And I loved headlining my own party. That was amazing. But I didn't love conversations with agents. And I didn't love trying to tell people this is a festival their band should be playing. They just wanted to know how much money they were going to get paid. And I found that, that stuff quite soul destroying, that business end of the industry, which is quite grueling, you know. And I haven't had much experience of that. So it, it, I'm enormously proud of it. And um, yeah, I mean, I should, yeah, they, it, it was a great thing to be involved with and, uh, and yeah, enormous amount of pride, but, uh, but it, you know, it, it ended in a way that I would rather it hadn't, you know, and there were people that became involved in that business who remain nameless, who, um, who I don't wish well, it has to be said, but they're, wow. they're not part of my life anymore. So that's all good. Andy, how do you feel about Lovebox? Is, is it a similar sort of situation with you? Yeah, it was, I mean, it was, uh, yeah, as Tom said, it was totally un, unplanned beginnings, but it was um, that was yeah, it was quite mad when you 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 find yourself uh, on the right side of twenty thousand ticket sales, which is great. But then it's like, okay, where do where do you hire toilets? Where do you hire fences? 
<laughs> you know, well, you know, all, all, all the kind of minutiae I was trying to put on, on some of that scale, and it, and it did, you know, had moments of absolute, um, you know, uh, timeless kind of joy, really, where you're 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 standing on the main stage having headlined your own thing, and towards the end there were like you know sixty or seventy thousand people across the weekend coming into this thing and having the time of their lives, and and you're standing at the heart of that with basically with just a group of mates holding the whole thing together. Uh, it, they, they were they were amazing moments, you know. And then, but as you get bigger, of course, uh, you attract more and more attention. Not all of it pleasant, and uh, and it, and it, towards the end, it became quite a struggle. Particularly for Tom, actually, he was more in the thick of that this struggle than I was. But uh, it became quite a struggle, and um, and so you have a tendency to, tendency to sort of remember that or the magical bit that preceded it. Mm. But uh, as time passes. Hopefully we can get them to focus more more on the magic. Did it remind you guys of when you would put on your own parties back in the day? In the in the early days, hundred percent. You know, because there were loads of friends around us. You know, like loads of our mates who were in clubbing. You know, promoters we knew we were bringing in. Like Andy mentioned his cousin Rick from DIY and all these guys. They were doing the artwork and guys and gals and lots of good friends around us. Those early days when. It wasn't about the business of of music. We're, we're, we're really lovely. And it's funny, it's like, like when we started Lovebox, there were no festivals in cities. Like it wasn't like like the idea that you could put a festival on in the centre of London. There weren't that like so I'm proud of that stuff. I'm proud that we thought, no, look, you know, we'd come back from Glastonbury, we were super Glastonbury heads, loved it. And we were like, how do we bottle some of the experiences of Glastonbury that we love and how do we pop that into into Hackney how do we make that happen and that stuff I'm really proud of and we managed to have you know those bits of chaos even from you know 12 till 11 o'clock at night we'd get that you know Lost Vegas were involved at times Horsemeat Disco I mentioned you know one year we had Dizzy Rascal headline the Friday Roxy Music on a Saturday and Grace Jones on a Sunday you know you know I look at that poster some of all my heroes you know and and to put that together and and not to have compromised our ideals, you know, and to put people like Roxy Music on a Saturday night was, you know, people like, that's not going to work. And and it sort of did work, really. And then we went on to record work with Brian Ferry. So that really worked, you know, so that was great. So, yeah, the, those bits are amazing. It was just the tail end of it when you're you're feeling under pressure to just to make money. And so you make yeah. artistic choices a bit like. Pete was, you know, you know, I was mentioning on your on your podcast listening earlier. You, you feel that pressure. Once you get away from doing the things you love, you're at risk, you know, because then you book things for money, but you don't really believe in them. And so, if they don't work, then you just lost a ton of money and you hate yourself. And again, I could name one couple of artists in particular, which I will not name because they're nice people, but where that sort of thing happened and that wasn't great being around that booking people for way too much money and they're not delivering, you know. Yeah, I've I've got to say I played Love Bucks with Rudimental back in 2014, I think it was, and um, I remember walking through the gates and seeing the ticket offices and thinking, I'm in I'm in fucking London, <laughs> I'm in London. This is mental, yeah. and the size of the stages and the scale of the entire festival mm. was so impressive. Mm. And um, I actually didn't know that you guys put on the love box came from you guys. Yeah. Um, so it, it's mad to hear that it's kind of like the early promoter days that you tried to do first time round mm. on, uh, on, on 50 times yeah. a bigger scale yeah. and 50 times more successful. Mm. Um, 
but it's, it's a sh shame. Do you think that corporate corporations and businesses, so example for the VIP table business in Ibiza, do you think that sort of corporation financial side of things is ruining Rave? I mean, personally, I think it's mixed because the thing you're talking about, like that, your experience of Lovebox in 2014, we were long gone from them. That was taken over by... Right. Live Nation. I have to say, I've got no beef with them. I think they do a great job. You know, they, they, they've they got good people that work for them. They've got real music heads that book the acts. You know, they're involved with Glastonbury. So, what you know, if you work with the right people, there's some really talented, passionate people within the business end of music, totally. But you've got to pick the right ones. And you're right, the, on Ibiza, the kind of the corporate side of things. And, the, you know, it's the thing that pays the bills for people. That's the reality. It's the, it's the VIP tables that actually pay the bills. But what you mustn't forget because it's the kids on the dance floor that make the whole thing happen. And if you start making life impossible for them, then the whole thing, the whole operation falls apart, you know? Interesting. All right, let me um, let me play the last song. Uh, Tom, I'm guessing this one's your choice, or has Andy taken all three? Yeah, I feel badly, yeah, because I've done all the talking for the last five minutes. But yeah, this is... <laughs> it's uh, all right. Is it When You Were Mine? It's, it's the Prince one, yeah. Can you tell me a bit about this? Yeah, I mean, this is, for me, is like my moment... You know, I was quite into like this. I was into like the Smiths and the Wedding Present and indie, really, when I was a teenager. And then really it was this record, which I think the album is called Dirty Minds. And they cover it, if you don't know, it's sort of Prince in, it's black and white. And Prince has got this sort of open jacket on and a pair of black, very tight briefs. And I must have been about 14, 15. I was like, whoa, what is this? I had never seen anything like it and I'd never heard anything like it. And and it's sort of, you know, it's very minimalist. It's like it's Prince playing funk. You know, it's very stripped back. It's less, it's my, you know, you can hear him jamming with his band. And um, yeah, that is what got me into wanting to, to be involved with dance music in its broadest sense. You know, this is this is the album that changed everything for me, really. And this track is, I could, I, I could listen to this track. If this would be my Desert Island disc, you know, this would be the one that I would take with me. It's amazing. It's an incredible song, actually. I listened before and it was very, very vibey. Yeah. This is When You Were Mine by Prince. incredible artist yeah amazing um so i'm gonna bring it a bit up, um more up to date now so you are releasing your ninth studio album are you yeah so. um and you've had numerous brits and grammy nominations which is incredible because i think that's what all um artists definitely how i feel like i won't stop until i get a fucking Brit award and I don't know how long it's going to take me but I will eventually get there one day please um but all of that kind of critically acclaimed stuff you know what keeps you going now what keeps you excited what keeps you guys you know in love with each other and and so forth and I'll give that one to Andy yeah, well, I mean, I think it's just a very, very similar to how it was in in my flat in in Clapham, in whenever it was. You know, it's it's like when we 
when we decided to do this, this cause we have not not made a, an album album for a long time, ten years or so, a bit less than that, something like that. But uh, when we decided to do this one, which came off the back of uh, of doing um, a few a small live gigs, uh, when was I'm losing track of the years now because this last year that we've got last year, I think it was, yeah, yeah. Uh, and we a particular uh, one in particular in the in the warehouse project in Manchester, which is sort of the end of the this little run of. Um, of, of smaller vibey gigs just we, we did simply for the fun of it to get the old crew together you know one last time and um it just felt great and that kindled up uh, a bit of digging around in the uh, in the in the sort of cutting room floor uh tapes of the black light album which is our our, our previous one uh and and that, as soon as we started listening to bits and getting excited about ideas it just rekindled that thing really where the get the two of us in a room is hundred percent focused on making tunes and it's just a real laugh, you know, and when we go at it, we do go at it, not least now because I live in France and Tom lives in London. So this album was made in a series of properly intense, like not far off 24 hour sessions, you know, old school and uh, in Tom's basement. Uh, but it's just that the hundred percent focus, like you know, we've all got lots of shit going on in our lives, but right now we're just doing this, and there's plenty of beers in the fridge, and we can turn it up nice and loud, and it's just a laugh, you know. And uh, and there's no agenda, there's, and we're just going to make whatever kind of tune we want to hear. What actually came out, telling me, I suppose, was a kind of tribute to the blue-eyed soul sound that was for so many years uh, the, the the tour bus party soundtrack. And we kind of made our own version of the Torbus Party soundtrack. <laughs> no way. So is that what kind of in- influenced you for this album then? Is this what kind of drives you forward um, with kind of musical influences? Or have you actually looked at, at the landscape of music uh, nowadays to, to make new music? Yeah, I think, that, I think that did drive us forward. I think that we, uh, you know, I think we're, I'm very aware of what's happening now and I, I'm, I'm a real neophyte. I'm always digging new stuff and, and I'm excited about that. But I felt like this album, we were very much in our own lane, you know, just doing what, like Andy said, you know, I think we felt, that, like Andy said, we'd done the gig and that felt really special. And then the, the Manchester gig where I felt particularly special. And then, yeah, and then I think it was just really fun to be in the basement again making music. So we just made slightly selfishly amazing music for ourselves, really, and stuff we wanted to enjoy. There's, we didn't have a record deal when we were doing it, so there was no sort of pressure. There was no sense of what the audience was even, you know. So it was just, yeah, make these tunes, some of which were, were things that we probably should never have left behind in the last record and other ones which were new bits. But, yeah, there was that blue-eyed soul kind of, easier sort of sound that we did on this record it's not it's a dance record in some ways but it's um but like andy said it's got that slightly blue-eyed soul almost a bits of hall and oats almost in some of the tracks you know yeah i listened through actually and i was um i was quite surprised at how um there was a lot of actual kind of songs on there in a typical song format um rather than a than a dance album um, sort of thing. There was a there what there are definitely hints of that, um, but how exciting to kind of um, push forward that whole genre still um, after after this long. Um, my final question then: How do you think audiences have changed? Are you looking forward to playing this? Um, are you looking forward to playing this uh, uh, new album out to to a whole new audience? It's really right. I think it's going to be. You go, mate. Sorry, mate. Go on. I was only going to say one thing was just because I'm up here. I've been I'm up here with a few friends on holiday at the moment, so I've been showing off a picture of our last show, which was um, which is a great picture from us. Uh, um, 
at Boontown last summer. And, and that was another one of those gigs where you just think, wow, God, maybe, you know, there's still a lot of credit in the bank there, you know, and we played this festival, which is an amazing festival. It's a real vibey thing. And it's this natural amphitheater in Winchester. And there must have been 40,000 people there. And the audiences didn't feel that different to me then. It felt great, you know, playing again. And I think there's something about live music particularly, which, you know, is just... And it's one thing we all need to get back to as soon as we possibly can, because there's a real magic in that. And it, it's it is timeless, that connection with people. So uh, for me, I, I, I wouldn't have said that that it was an amazing gig, that one at Boomtown and one I really cherish. And even though we closed last be 10 years ago, this one felt just as good for me. You know, I felt just as excited to be up on stage and for people to be appreciating the music we've written. It felt really extraordinary from for that just that specific memory of that gig. But sorry, and I've interrupted you twice, so I'll let you say something. <laughs> no, I was going to say exactly the same thing. I was going to just talk about Boomtown and um, and how, uh, you know, it was this massive stage, as Tom said, with a sort of 40,000-person capacity. It was empty all day long. Uh, there was just some bands playing some sort of nice reggae and stuff, but there was no one there. And it was a really young crowd and it was a DJ-led festival and all the DJ shit was in this amazing, like, you know, uh, ruins of New York type uh, set that was built, but a long way away. So this this stage was a destination venue. You know, you're never going to walk past it. And uh, and so I hadn't even dared to look round the curtain before we walked on stage. And we walked <laughs> on stage. It was one of the most memorable views of my life, you know. So wow. uh, I think it does feel that you know as soon as we can uh, we can turn it up again and start playing music again it, it, it feels that uh, this thing that we do of uh, of playing dance music with a band and that combination of kind of heaviness and uppiness which uh, has kind of become our our signature still feels like it's relevant so if people are up for it then so are we Tom and Andy, thank you so much for joining me. It has been a pleasure to talk to the legends that are Groove Armada. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Becky. Thanks for having us. The Art of Rave is presented and written by me, Becky Hill. It is a Strawberry Blonde production for my record label, Echo Records. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.